Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. The Winter Olympics just recently came to a close in Beijing, China, and I have to say for the first time in my life, I didn't watch a single second of the games. This is unusual because I've always been a huge fan of the Olympics. I love the pomp and circumstance. I love cheering for your country to do well. And most of all, I love the opportunity to watch sports that I otherwise never really get a chance to see. And in the Winter Games, there is plenty of that to go around. And most of it is plenty darn exciting. But this time around, I just wasn't that interested. There are probably several things that I can attribute my apathy to, though I can't really say that any one was a big factor than any other. There was the whole idea of these games being in China, with that country's record of oppression of ethnic groups and draconian efforts to control the messaging coming from athletes, the fact that we just had the summer games last year, the continued need for empty stadiums, and the fact that we have just finally started to get out from under the burden of the pandemic and all of its effects on us over the past two years. Altogether, it just kind of left me feeling not interested. Plus, and this is a big one, there was the inevitable doping story that once again tainted so much of what is usually good about the Olympics and served as a reminder once again of all that's bad. I suppose the least surprising part of this particular Olympics doping story was the fact that it involved the Russian team. But everything aside from that made this far from a typical case. By now, I am sure that all of you will know the particulars, so I'm not going to rehash them here. Suffice it to say that 15-year-old figure skater Kamila Valieva tested positive for banned substance after competing in the team event. But this was on a sample that she had provided way back in December to her Russian uh, Russian Doping Control Federation. The results only became available and public during the Olympics, which in itself was kind of odd. Protests were lodged, hearings were held, and in the end, Valieva was allowed to compete in the individual competition, though it came as no surprise to me that she crumpled under the pressure and scrutiny and didn't end up meddling, despite being far and away the gold medal favorite. The conversation on all of this during the Olympics was, for the most part, unfortunately somewhat predictable. The American media had a field day and showed righteous indignation at every turn over what they perceived as a complete farce. This itself I found somewhat farcical given the numerous doping scandals that have involved American athletes over the years, for which there was rarely any such indignation, righteous or otherwise. But as I said, this was predictable and honestly, what else were they going to say? Shakari Richardson, the African-American sprinter who you may remember from last year's U.S. sprinting trials when she was disqualified for a positive THC test in competition at that time, inserted herself into the fray, questioning whether or not race had anything to do with the fact that this Russian still got to compete and she, as a black woman, did not. Look, I am just as opposed as anyone else to doping in sport, especially our sport, triathlon but also in the Olympics, where positive tests are such a big deal. But I have to admit that I find the circumstances around this case are just not that clear and make forming an opinion somewhat less than straightforward. Whatever you may think of her, Camilla Valieva is a child, a 15-year-old child. There is no way that this minor worked out her own doping program and took it upon herself to take this 
cardiac medication that she was ended up being found to be positive for. This kid was purposely administered illegal substances by the adults who were responsible for caring for her. And to me, that is a crime. And I mean that in the literal sense, a criminal act. This kid is not the one who deserves to be punished. Rather, it's the adults who are ostensibly looking out for her best interests. They are the ones who need to be blamed and scrutinized and banned. And yet, for the most part, I heard very little of them. The reality is, the Russians have mastered state-sponsored doping for some time now. And the way this whole fiasco played out is emblematic of that. I mentioned how Valieva's positive test was from way back in December. Well, there's a reason that it took so long to come back. Guess who was in charge of getting that sample evaluated? Well, the Russians, of course. Essentially, they slow-walked her sample to the lab, ensured that their lab took their sweet time in processing it, and when it resulted positive, guess who was then responsible for overturning result? Not the World Anti-Doping Association, not the International Olympic Committee, but it was the Russians themselves because they were in charge of that specific test. They just decided right then and there during the Olympics to simply overturn it, a process that usually takes weeks or even months. Now, as for Shikari Richardson's assertion, I don't for a second want to insinuate that racism is not a gigantic issue in this country and around the world, because it is. Still, I don't really think that it's fair to say that racism had any role really in these two cases. I've already talked about the Valieva case, so let's just revisit Richardson's for just a moment in order to contrast the two. First, Richardson herself took the drug in question that she knew was banned, and she admitted it when the result came back positive. So right away, that's a huge difference. Second, Richardson tested positive at the U.S. trials, where USADA was in charge, and where the result was available much more quickly. Furthermore, she was still in the United States and not at the Olympics themselves, as Valieva was when her result came back. So, a lot of major differences in the cases. Now, I don't want to imply that I am completely against Richardson. She and many others have questioned whether or not THC should be on the prohibited substance list at all. But the fact of the matter is that it was. And she knew that, and she still took it. I really don't see how she can complain about the consequences for her own actions and even contrast it to what we're seeing from this Russian figure skater. Now, to return to Valieva's case, again, I don't really know how I feel about it and how things were handled. Clearly, the Russians are completely untrustworthy, and the fact that they are even at the games is um, comical. But they are there, and now we have to figure out how to handle these Keystone Cops kinds of affairs. To punish Valieva may have made all the talking heads and the media, you know, voices happy, but would it really have solved anything? Aside from irreparably harming this child, I can't really see what it would have done. One thing is for certain, I will only be satisfied if her coaches are severely punished. And since it's up to the Russian Olympic Committee to investigate and adjudicate this matter, I'm pretty sure that I won't be getting that satisfaction. On the show today, I'm going to discuss yet another supplement, but, and this is a big but, I'm excited to tell you that in the case of spirulina, a completely plant-derived product, there's been some really good quality science done. And you might not believe this, but I'm going to be on board with its use. I know, I know, this is not a common thing to hear on this program. All the more reason to be excited for the medical segment that's going to be coming up shortly. Later, I'm joined by professional triathlete Laura Siddle. Laura has had an incredible journey from the corporate world to the front of the pro-women's ranks in the long-distance events of the Ironman world. 
If you're one of my Patreon supporters, then you heard Laura's bonus interview last month, and you know how entertaining and how interesting she is to listen to. Well, now she's here for everyone to hear as we discuss her history in the sport, as well as other issues relevant to her and to women in triathlon. Speaking of my Patreon supporters, I have another new one to introduce to you. Xenia Parker has joined the growing ranks of listeners who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they wanted to help support this program, while at the same time getting access to the kinds of bonus content that I just mentioned that is only available to those supporters. And this month, that means a bonus episode with an interview with professional triathlete Sky Munch. Sky will have a full interview with me for the full podcast coming up in the next few episodes, but right now, you can hear her on the dedicated feed that is only for my Patreon supporters giving a bonus interview. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to this interview and all the other content that's up there right now. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thanks in advance just for considering If you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, then you know that I'm not really a big fan of supplements. Now, there are several reasons why the various tablets, capsules, and powders that are aggressively marketed to triathletes have, for the most part, never really curried favor with me, and you're welcome to go back and listen to any of the many episodes in which I've looked at any number of them to hear them all. But if I could sum up a recurring theme from everything that I have learned and looking at just about all of the supplements that I have examined to date, it would be this. They all overpromise, underdeliver, and overcharge. And these are three deadly sins, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to products that are purported to make an athlete better at any of training, racing, or recovering. Well, on this episode of the podcast, for probably the first time ever, you're going to hear me speak favorably about a supplement, and it's one that I am happy to discuss, because it's pretty inexpensive, very environmentally friendly, since it's entirely plant-derived and leaves pretty much no footprint of waste in its cultivation, and surprisingly, and most important to my listeners, has been shown repeatedly in fairly high-quality studies to confer benefits to performance in exactly the kinds of ways that triathletes are interested in. The supplement in question is spirulina. But unlike all of the other supplements that I have discussed in the past, spirulina is not one single thing. Instead, it's a plant-like extract that contains many things, the sum of which produce some pretty interesting and quantifiable effects on health and performance. Spirulina, you see, is the name given to the extract obtained from two different species of blue-green algae, spirulina platensis and spirulina maxima that grow in both fresh and salt water, which makes them exceptionally easy to, cl- uh, to cultivate and to harvest. These tiny, single-celled organisms harvest the energy of the sun and micronutrients from the water they live in in order to become little bundles of goodness that, when dried and consolidated into any number of forms such as powders, capsules, tablets, or even frozen cubes to be blended into smoothies, can then supplement even the healthiest and well-rounded of diets. A typical dose of spirulina is about a tablespoon worth, or 7 grams, and within that 7 grams you're going to find 4 grams of protein, 
11% of the recommended daily allowance of thiamine or vitamin B1, 15% of riboflavin or B2, 4% of niacin B3, 21% of the recommended daily allowance of copper, and 11% of the RDA of iron. Though because this is a plant-based source, not all of that is going to be readily bioavailable. Now, in addition, spirulina has numerous other micronutrients, including omega-3 fatty acids and a large number of complex antioxidant molecules that are known to be biologically active and, as we're going to see, important. Now, spirulina has been widely reported to have, well, a plethora of health benefits, but few of them have been studied really rigorously. Still, it's worth noting that advocates for this stuff have reported improved lipid profiles, blood pressure reduction, and even glycemic control. Though again, a lot of this is a little bit speculative and pretty consistent with the kind of hype that I see with a lot of supplements. Where there has been some decent research done, though, is in the area of exercise performance and even recovery in athletes who have taken spirulina, and it's really here that I want to concentrate the rest of my discussion, because these results are the most relevant to us and, quite frankly, the most interesting. Now, the first of these studies that really got people's attention on this product came from a researcher named Lou, who back in 2006 conducted a pretty well-designed experiment in which they had subjects take either spirulina or soy protein supplements and then perform an effort on a treadmill. Then, all the subjects switched protocols for a couple of weeks before reproducing the same effort. Now, this kind of double-blind crossover design is really powerful because not only are you comparing the groups to each other in terms of which intervention they got, but you're also having the subjects serve as their own control because every subject got both of the interventions and you can compare the effects of each intervention within the same individual, as well as comparing them to the individuals in the other group. The results of Lou's efforts were pretty impressive and led to much of the research on spirulina and exercise that followed. Essentially, he found that subjects who took spirulina had a pretty important increase in the ability to perform an all-out effort on a treadmill, 765 seconds versus 713 seconds in the controls who got the soy protein. And that's a relative increase of more than 7%. I'm sure you'll agree, that's pretty significant. They also measured various markers of tissue damage in the blood and found that in the spirulina group, there was evidence that muscle cells sustained less damage than without the supplement, and they attributed this to all of the antioxidants that are contained within the spirulina supplements, which can help mitigate the kind of oxidative stress that we see in intense efforts from exercise. Another study in 2010 built off of Lou's work and again found consistent results with improved performance on a treadmill test and lower serum markers of both inflammation and cell damage, suggesting that spirulina both enhances performance and again prevents cell damage associated with that higher performance. And more recently, a study in 2020 looked at hand cycling and again found improvements in performance. This time, though, the authors tried to identify some other reasons for why performance might be improved, and here, the authors noted that, somewhat surprisingly, subjects who took spirulina for the week leading into the assessment saw a pretty important increase in their hemoglobin concentration. Now, you'll recall, hemoglobin is the molecule within our red blood cells that's responsible for transporting oxygen to our working muscles. So when you see an increase in hemoglobin, it suggests there's an increase in red cell mass. 
Now, they correlated this increase in hemoglobin with lower heart rate and higher muscle oxygen uptake during exercise that they suggested might be due to the higher hemoglobin levels and were all a result of taking spirulina. Now, to me, this seems a little bit suspect because even though spirulina is pretty high in iron, it takes more than seven days of supplementation to see a significant increase in red blood cell production to the degree that was reported in this study. So probably the red blood cell increases were coming from somewhere else. And indeed, a different group of authors felt the same way as I do and came up with an alternative hypothesis for how hemoglobin levels might have increased in these subjects. Rather than from new red cell production stimulated by the iron within the spirulina, a researcher by the name of Engen surmised that spirulina might be causing the spleen to contract. The spleen, you see, is an organ that sits within the abdomen and is essentially a pretty large reservoir, essentially a sponge for red blood cells. And if spirulina was causing the spleen to squeeze like a sponge, then a whole bunch of red cells would be dumped into the vasculature, leading to an increase in red blood cell mass and therefore an increase in hemoglobin on the order of what was observed and in the right time frame in these previous studies. Engen further surmised that various components in spirulina contribute to an increase in circulating nitrates, similar to what we see with beetroot juice ingestion. And it turns out that nitrates have this very effect on the spleen to cause it to contract and increase red cell mass within the vasculature. Incidentally, and this is my hypothesis alone, not something that I've seen in the literature, I wonder if this might be a means by which beetroot juice adds to a positive effect. We know that beetroot juice increases nitrates in the bloodstream, and we know that nitrates are responsible for improving blood flow and oxygen flow to the muscles, but I wonder if also this sort of contraction of the spleen is improving hemoglobin and therefore improving oxygen-carrying capacity, and thereby not only improving oxygen delivery within the muscles, but also improving the amount of oxygen that can be delivered by increasing red blood cells. Now, again, I haven't seen any evidence in the literature that someone has looked at this specifically, I'm just surmising this based on what I've read in the literature on spirulina and putting the two together. Now, the last study that I want to cover is the most recent one that came out on this, and this was one that this was the one that really caught my eye and got me interested in spirulina in the first place. It was authored by Tom Gurney from Kingston University in England and evaluated the effects of a three-week um, trial of taking spirulina supplements on cyclists. Now, this article was different in one very important way from all of the others that I've mentioned so far, in that in this experiment, the cyclists were pretty high-level athletes, as opposed to all the other papers where subjects were, for the most part, not that well-trained. In this trial, the well-trained cyclists were asked to perform several different types of tasks, including a short time trial, a lactate threshold test, and repeated sprint tests. And what was found by the authors here was that similar to previous studies, spirulina had an observable positive effect on performance, as well as on markers of fatigue. Now, for the time trial, something that is obviously of great interest to triathletes, there wasn't any real difference in performance in those who were taking spirulina. But for the other tests, there was a decrease in lactate production, lower observed heart rate for the same effort, and a higher peak and average power noted for the sprints. On blood testing, similar to what we saw in the previous studies, hemoglobin levels were again increased with spirulina. And Gurney took pains to note that he too doubted this was simply a result of red cell production, but rather reflected that 
probably what was happening. There was splenic liberation of red cell mass and increasing uh, stored hemoglobin into hemoglobin that was now circulating in the bloodstream. So this is a fair amount of data to suggest that spirulina has some interesting, if potentially modest, effects on your blood, your biochemistry, and in some aspects, your performance. Though how much of a benefit this has on long-term endurance stuff that we triathletes do is a little bit uncertain because that hasn't been studied specifically. Still, this seems pretty promising and definitely more promising than anything else I have looked at before. Some other studies on spirulina that came up in our research were unrelated to exercise, but were still very interesting. In one, a researcher by the name of Johnson looked at the supplement and its ability to reduce physical and mental fatigue. The assessment was somewhat subjective, and so it's not nearly the same level or quality of evidence that we saw in other studies, but here again, spirulina did show promise, giving long-lasting effects over the eight weeks of the study to decrease both mental and physical fatigue. A better study, conducted by an author by the name of Pappas, looked at spirulina and its effects on recovery from hard efforts. Remember, as I said earlier, the plant contains high levels of these complex antioxidants that have been purported to be useful for exactly this kind of purpose, to improve recovery. Well, in this study, the authors found that, indeed, taking spirulina leading up to intense efforts of exercise did have some effects, but if you took it after intense exercise, it didn't really have any effect on preventing muscle damage. So if you want that kind of benefit that you saw in some of the other studies that I mentioned, you need to take spirulina before the workouts and not after in order to get any kind of benefits on recovery. Finally, I want to talk briefly about a couple of studies done on spirulina's effect on non-exercise health issues. In 2019, a study was published looking at how spirulina supplementation can alter blood lipid profiles in men with excess body weight. You'll recall, recently, I discussed the importance of being active at all body weights, and this study on spirulina demonstrated that fact once again. In this paper, the author showed that in sedentary individuals, spirulina alone had no effect on lipid profiles, that is to say the LDL-HDL cholesterol ratio. But in those who were active in some way, taking spirulina had a definite effect, moving those ratios into a more positive state than in those who were active but didn't take the supplements. And in a 2019 meta-analysis, Pooling the results of several studies looking at the use of spirulina to augment an exercise program in order to lose weight, the supplement was shown to help people improve their lipid profiles, lose weight, and decrease their body mass index when taken for longer than three months. Okay, that's a lot of science and a lot of data that I've kind of thrown at you, but I think that it's important to understand that we have something here that seems to give several potential benefits in ways that are not all completely well understood, but still bears out on repeated examination. And to me, that's worth digging into in this kind of granularity. Now, if you're intrigued and want to try this blue-green algae stuff, you may find yourself wondering, where do I get it? And more importantly, how much does it cost? Well, the good news is that spirulina is widely available. And because it is a plant that is easily cultivated and harvested rather than manufactured, it tends not to be too expensive. A quick search on uh, Dr. Google led me to all manner of spirulina products in all kinds of forms. You can get the stuff in tablets, capsules, powder, or even frozen cubes that you can throw into smoothies. And while some forms are a bit pricey, most tend not to be. For the standard dose, that is about 7 grams per day, it'll cost you around a dollar per day in most forms. 
If you see products that charge significantly more than that, I would move on and look elsewhere because you can find it cheaper. Now, how and when you take it is kind of up to you. There doesn't appear to be any downside whatsoever to taking this stuff all the time, so if you want to take it every day, I'd say have at it. But if you're looking to really just incorporate this solely as a supplement for racing and performance-related measures, then you should consider using it for the three weeks leading up to an event and potentially for a week following. So there you have it, the TriDoc's second-ever supplement endorsement. Spirulina can be added to beetroot juice, remembering that beetroot juice only has positive results in men, while spirulina, thus far, seems to be effective in both genders. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, and I'll be sure to consider it and let you know if I will include it on the podcast coming up in a later date. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. My guest today is professional triathlete Laura Siddle. Laura came to multisport in a more circuitous route than many of her peers. British-born, she represented England in athletics and netball, a sport that I'm sure all of my North American uh, listeners will be very familiar with. No, you won't, but we'll talk about that, uh, before finding triathlon after she had moved to Sydney, Australia. Laura has a first-class degree in mechanical engineering and served as an officer in the British Army before several years in the corporate world, working for large global multinationals. But the last few seasons have seen Laura emerge from a complete beginner in the sport to a four-time amateur world champion into the global spotlight with professional wins across the world and one of the top females in our sport. She has podium finishes in 43 of her last 46 starts, including four wins at the Ironman distance, 2018 ETU European Long Course Champion, and the fastest British woman in 2016 and 2017. But her accomplishments on course are exceeded often by what she does off of it. She's an ambassador for the Women's Sports Trust and an avid supporter of the Challenged Athlete Foundation. Laura volunteers and fundraises, supporting and working with local communities and projects around the world. And she recently set up a partnership between Souls for Souls and Challenge Family and Souls for Souls and Nuff Red, where she also recently became a non-executive director. And if that wasn't enough, she also launched SIDS Squad, supporting, mentoring, and providing a community for young female triathletes on their journeys in sport. And somehow, amidst all of that, and training for the upcoming season, she has found some time to join me today, and I couldn't be more excited. Laura, thank you so much for being with me on the TriDoc Podcast. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm uh, a bit, yeah, flattered by the uh, by the introduction, but no, thanks very much for, ha- for having me on. Well, it's great when uh, you know you can hear all the things that you've accomplished just read back to you like that. Because in 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 when you're doing them, they kind of just sort of all add up slowly and surely. But then when they all are sort of just 
put to you right there. And then it's, it's nice that in some total, they, they really amount to such a, an amazing career and you're still quite young. You've got so much more to accomplish. So I'm really excited to have you here and talk about what you've done and what you're going to do. I, I will pay you later for that compliment on my age. That's so very kind of you. <laughs> well, th- I want to begin first with uh, this idea that your career arc is is not like many of the pros who come up through the ITU circuit and things like that. So, so tell us how you found triathlon and how you realized that you could be successful at it. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely having is a bit of a I don't know abnormal or unusual path. I. I guess I'd always been sporty playing at, like, as you said, netball and hockey, field hockey, that is as well, um, and athletics, or I think you guys call it track. I, um, as I was growing up, pretty much did most sports. Didn't I say I didn't do swimming. I was in the school swim team only because I was like a sporty kid at school. Um, I got our team to squat and I had to always do butterfly, which I'd never been taught to do. We didn't have like a swim squad set up like you do in sort of the States and Australia and countries like that. Um, So I had to do butterfly for some reason. I got our relay team disqualified twice. I still have no idea what I did wrong. (laughs) Anyway. um, So yeah, so grew up playing sports, um, went through school, to me, sport was, well, it was considered the hobby that you did. It looked good on your CV. It gave you rounded skills when you went into the corporate world. But um, in the UK, at the age I was growing up, it definitely wasn't really considered as a as a career. Um, so, yeah, I went through school, went into the army for a, for a gap year, went on to university, and then started working in engineering for Shell, the, uh, the big um, energy company. And... Um, through my work with Shell, got a, a assignment out to Australia, and so moved out to Australia. And um, yeah, just I guess with you know friends from they knew I was a runner. I did some running with a friend from work, and then um, we would go swimming. I say swim again. I'm not. We go swimming at lunchtime because we were working. We were working on an oil refinery, um, not offshore on onshore. So it's not you know the most glamorous, and there was as there is in, in Australia, there's 50 meter outdoor swimming pools sort of on every corner. So we'd, a few of us would escape at a lunchtime and go swimming, but mainly because there was an amazing Vietnamese sandwich shop around the corner. And it meant we could like, you had a reason to get one of these sandwiches after, after swimming. Um, but yeah, I, and through friends from work, they were, they were doing a charity. They'd all signed up for a charity bike ride, which was, 56 miles down the coast in, in, in Sydney and you'd ride down and then you got the train back and they, you know, they said, Oh, you know, why don't you come along with us? So I, I bought a bike pretty much the week before, I think it was a hybrid, hybrid road mountain bike. I would imagine you'd probably call it flat pedals. Nothing. It was far too, when I look back at the pictures now, it was far too small for me. I don't know how the, the bike shop, they obviously saw me coming and sold me this bike. Um, and yeah, and 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 did this did this ride, enjoyed it. Definitely didn't break any records or anything like that, but just yeah, just really enjoyed it. And sort of the same friend said, "Oh, you should you should give triathlon a go." Um, and I hadn't really heard of the sport. Um, uh, one of the netball girls at university did triathlon, and I was a, a tr- I was a track runner. I was like, "Why would you want to do sort of three sports, not one?" Um, but being in Australia, it's very much it's such a popular sport and you know, went went on good old internet and looked up and found a beginner's 
a beginner's course that was started right in, in Sydney and Bondi. And um, yeah, pretty much signed up for that. I think it was a six or eight week course and they were tied in with a local race at the end of it. And um, yeah, just did that and got sucked in and then started doing, you know, more and more of it as a, as an amateur um, and sort of, I guess, yeah, worked my way up from being that complete beginner on that hybrid. My first race was on that hybrid road mountain bike um I had a very fast transition from bike to run because I was already in my trainers because of that sort of thing um and yeah just got more and more sucked in and, and loved the sport and progressed through the age group ranks and I guess it got sort of more and more serious and um yeah I was lucky to win sort of four age group world titles but over the I mean sprint one sprint, I think, to Olympic distance, and then I sort of stepped back, stepped up to the the half distance, and it was, I guess, at that point, sort of people had started to say, "Why didn't you turn professional?" And again, still a pretty new concept to me in the sport. Um, but also, I could I couldn't turn professional in the in the in the short course in the Olympic distance because one, I was I was too old. I had an awful swim. Um, and I wasn't in any sort of governing body um, development program or anything like that. So the only option was to do sort of middle distance and longer. And I kind of just, yeah, I, I mean, it was that I was more and more of my headspace was going towards the training and the races when I was sort of sat at my desk doing my cor- corporate job. And I got to that point of going, yeah, you don't, you know, don't want to look back in, 10 or 20 years time and think think what if and you know that you justify it by saying the corporate world will always be there <laughs> um but sport won't so yeah kind of took a leap of faith I guess or jumped off a cliff and uh decided to to go fully in as to being a yeah being a professional and that was uh when was that beginning of 2014 so I mean, it seems a while ago now. It still seems very, it doesn't seem that long ago. When I say the date, I'm going, gosh, it's been quite a few years, but um, I still feel so new and fresh and I'm still learning and developing, even though I'm so much older in the sport. It's such a great story, though, because for so many, I think, who are in the sport, I think it's probably a big question mark as to what they'll do after. And for you, it's not because clearly you had a career before. This was something <laughs> that just sort of, I mean, it didn't fall into your lap, but it kind of did. Yeah. I mean, it came out of nowhere. And and you know that, you know, when you're done, it's time to hang up the shoes and the bike because you've got something to go back to. So uh, well, that's, that's I, nice. Yes, I, I do. Although I would be very rusty going back into engineering now. I've been out of the out of the industry for so long. I mean, it still it still fascinates me that that side of of corporate and business. And I, I guess I was doing quite a bit of sort of project management and business improvement, continuous development or continuous improvement as I left. So yeah, I could I could go back in, but um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I'm kind of putting my head in the sand about that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Live in the moment. That's what that's what's important. <laughs> yeah. I, I do want to just take a pause briefly because it's come up now a few times. So I think we it, we owe it to the listeners to give a brief overview of netball. Oh gosh! All right. Um, the easiest way to describe it is very similar. It's more similar to basketball than handball or korfball or any of those other sort of sports, but. I'd say it's netball, it's seven players on a team, 
there's three areas of the, well, five areas of the court. And depending what position you play, you're only allowed in certain areas. You can't run and dribble the ball like you can in basketball. You So the ball has to move very quickly. But if you watch the international games, you would struggle to think, think that the players weren't running with it. It goes so fast. And it's you score one point when you get the ball through the, the the net at either end, and there's no there's no backboard like there is in basketball. That's probably the the simplest. It's mainly right. played in mainly played in Commonwealth countries, um, Australia, New Zealand, England, and Jamaica are probably the big the big hitters. Is it an Olympic sport? No, it's not. Which is fairly controversial. Just they're trying to get it into the Olympics. They've been trying for ages. Um, okay but I think they claim that not enough countries play it because it's that predominant um, uh, Commonwealth countries. And I don't know whether they do, it has to have a male version. There are, there are male netball teams, but it was, I guess, traditionally a, a girls sport, but yeah, hopefully it being, it is a great game to, to watch at the top level. You've talked about how uh, you were in the sport for a little while and doing really well, and then you decided to go pro. And did you did you have success right away as a pro, or was that something that came uh, like? I, I, I'm curious only because you know I could imagine leaving the corporate world, going pro, and if it doesn't work out right away, sort of second guessing. Or or did you have success right away? No, definitely not. Um, I think I, <laughs> as one of my first coaches said, like you don't have much talent, you just work hard. So. I'm kind of a slow progressive developer from that that point of view. Um, so no, yeah, the, the first couple of years and I kind of, you know, I resigned from my job, sold everything I owned in, in Australia and I moved to San Francisco to work with a, a coach base there. And um, suddenly, yeah, without that, that corporate salary coming in and prices of the cost of living in San Francisco and not knowing when you were, going to earn any money again um and you do you start second guessing yourself straight I mean I was under no illusion having been a top age grouper that I would be a top pro straight away I kind of completely understood that age group racing was very different to professional racing um so that yeah so I wasn't expecting to suddenly like you know turn up and be winning winning races but um you do start yeah, you start doubting yourself, you start second guessing, you're like, you start thinking, you know, you do that whole thing of what, what do other people think? You know, they, they've watched me sort of resign from the, be be a good age grouper, resign from the corporate world. Does she think she can make it as a pro? What does she, who does she think she is kind of thing? And um, yeah, those first few years were pretty, pretty tough sort of just finding, finding your feet and finding, finding your way and, and, and learning, learning the ropes and, and, and progressing, like closing that gap in performance. Yeah. What got you through that? Uh, like, how did you stick with it? What, I'm sure there were probably times when you thought, you know what, I'm just going to go back to what I know. Um, yeah, I think a stubbornness deep, deep down that, um, this is what I wanted to do. And I don't like to, I mean, it wouldn't, I guess now with hindsight and maturity, I wouldn't have seen it as defeat or failure. But um, yeah, I think there was that kind of like internal stubbornness and determination that, I mean, my reasons for doing it was I, I just wanted to see how good I could be. It wasn't necessarily about going to win a race or world championships as a professional. Um, You know, that was still quite an odd concept to me. 
it was like, I just want to fully commit to something. So you, you felt, you felt like you were leaving, you felt like leaving at that point would have been leaving something on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. I think that's very fair because I I still do now. Like that's why I'm still here. uh, That's really interesting. Cause you know, I, I, I have known some professionals who were always kind of fringe like they they got their pro card legitimately but then when they were in the pro ranks they were always kind of at the you know the tail end of the field and uh, you know I always kind of wondered you know why do they stick with it and I'm sure there are many people who would say what you did which is oh I'm stubborn and I you know I I think I can be better and and the reality is is not everybody can accomplish to be on the podium in a pro field and yet you did uh and I I I think it's um uh, I think it's it's it shows some insight and maturity even when you were doing it. You know, you say looking back, you have maturity now, but I think you clearly had maturity then as well because, as you said, you did get in to be a pro at an older age, and so I think that probably brought something with it. Yeah, I, I think like I don't, I, I try not to have regrets as such in life. Um, the only que- well, one of the question marks I have is like what if I'd have stayed in the art or gone back into the army after university that was probably that's probably the, a question mark I'd have been intrigued to find but then I you know I probably wouldn't be sat here talking to you today if I'd if I'd have done that um but I think I appreciated having those years in the corporate world before I then went into sport rather than having that path where you've been in a um, development program or you've always done sport from a young age and you've always had and probably you haven't had that other uh, corporate world experience I think mm. yeah no that's very fair uh, I wanted to take a moment just to to, to briefly comment on the, your personal logo I, I think it's fantastic I love it I spent a lot of time just kind of like exploring it and uh we'll have to uh, i'll definitely have a link to your website uh in the show notes where people can take a look at it but uh, tell me a little bit about it what does it mean to you and and how did you come up with it yeah so don't die wondering um it was actually as i when i was an age grouper and i was heading off to my first um age group world champs in the 70.3 distance so which was technically sort of in my last year as an as an amateur um, and it was 2013 going, heading to Vegas and, um, I'd kind of, yeah, I, I wanted to have a really, I wanted to win my age group. I wanted to be overall female amateur, but I guess the age group win was more important because I was on that. It was like around that verge of going, lots of people were saying you should go pro, but I hadn't really been doing the middle distance event. So it was kind of like, okay, we want to see, see what we can do. Um, and it was a friend in, in Australia, um, a older guy that used to kick our butts on the bike, still super strong sort of thing. Um, and he just said to me or sent me a message sort of as I was leaving and he just said, don't die wondering. And, um, yeah, I took that to Vegas and the race went really well. And I used that in the race at times to kind of get away from, from packs of riders on the course and I was like I'm not getting not getting caught up in this I've got to go for it now and you know time trial um and yeah I then sort of tried to just yeah take that with me in everything I do so I guess it it's funny because I'm (laughs) as you get older as well I think you become more risk averse but there's some things when I do just kind of jump off a cliff and don't really think of the consequences too much and um 
again, like going into that race, it was that, and then making the decision to to leave the corporate world and go go full time pro was a little bit a little bit the same. You know, people people ask, well, you know, did they did you do a sort of financial analysis on whether you could ah. afford to do it? And I was like, well kind of and then I just ignored it and put my head in the sand because probably if I looked at the numbers properly I would I wouldn't have made the jump and then I'd still be sitting here and you know then you're none the wiser sort of thing I love that story about uh, your logo I also love the artwork that you have there with the butterfly that uh, oh, incorporates yeah. the uh, did you draw that or uh, no a friend did come up with it but off based off photos of me racing um we have, yeah, I don't use that as much anymore. Um, but within my family, we just have a connection to butterflies and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's where that, that kind of, well, I from. think it's lovely artwork. You should use it. You should use it more. I think it, yeah. it really, it, it, it graces, uh, the, uh, document you sent me and I think it's really nice. Um, now, it is, of course, impossible to talk to a woman, professional British triathlete, without, of course, then asking about Chrissy Wellington and uh, now Lucy Charles Barkley. But I'm guessing uh, because of your route to triathlon, you probably don't have, uh, well, certainly, I, I, I'm guessing you don't have a relationship or know Chrissy at all, uh, or or do you? No, I actually do. She's, um, I, I mean, I wouldn't say we're we know I, I've spoken to her a few times we chat every now and again she's an incredible athlete well obviously was an incredible athlete still is in her own right um incredible ambassador for the sport um I remember I, I think you know sort of as I was getting into the sport she was sort of out there and I was I'm just a sports junkie so once I got into triathlon I was then sort of soaking up as much as I could and you know, would watch, watch the races if, if they were shown. Um, but the first time I met her was actually at challenge Roth when I raced and she was out there watching. And, um, so just, she was on the side of the road, outside of the run course. And obviously there was a British connection. I got, I was lucky enough to meet her afterwards. And then, um, we've got a very good mutual friend actually. So yeah, I've, I've had a bit of, um, a bit of interaction with Chrissy. She's, she's an amazing, obviously I've also read, read her books and listened to pretty much any podcast she's on. She's a, yeah, an incredible athlete. She did great things for the the sport in, in the UK, um, and is doing amazing things now for sport in general in the UK. Yeah. And does she remain, uh, like a mentor of types to, uh, to a female British triathlete still? Yeah, I think she's still, I think she probably has a lot of contact with a lot of the British women that are coming through the ranks. I think quite a few follow a similar story in terms of, um, you know, she was working in the, in the corporate world. She got into triathlon quite a lot later um, I am not saying that I'm anywhere near her ability and what she achieved as a racer. Um, but yeah, I think she's very supportive of the, oh, I mean, of any of the the women athletes, any of the male athletes, but she's very supportive, I think, of the, the female pros. And how about Lucy Charles Barkley? Do you, uh, I mean, obviously know of her, but do you, do you know her personally? Um, I mean, obviously like at race, we've raced together and I've been on, the other side of an event doing pro liaison type role when she's been an athlete. So I know him probably more on a professional basis than as a, as, as anything else. And, um, 
And then on the men's side, of course, Alistair Brownlee, uh, the main uh, protagonist, I guess, as uh, British uh, males uh, currently right now, and when one thinks of that, uh, do you have any uh, relationship with him uh, when racing, uh, uh, you know, in, in the world events that you do? Um, not with Al- I've interviewed, I've interviewed Johnny, Johnny Brownlee for, uh, for, um, uh, we did a Q and a session with, a with an app, uh, called Credo app. So motivational app. So we had Johnny, Tim Don, Non Stanford and Emma Pallant on the, the panel. And I was kind of the moderator for that. So I got to chat to Johnny a bit that way. He's, he's very funny. Um, but yeah, haven't had that much to do with Alistair apart from, yeah, I think sort of a couple of races, but on a very professional level and probably give him a little bit of a, a wider berth, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to finish up with talking about some some of the incredible charity work that you do. So so let's begin by telling me about your involvement with Challenged Athlete uh, uh, Foundation. Yeah, wow. So, I mean, as I said, like I just... I, I've gr- I grew up doing sport. It's given me so many opportunities just in terms of as a, a, a child, a young adult, um, the skills, the opportunities, the things you learn through team sports or individual at school. And, you know, now it's even when I was in my gap year and through university had had so many amazing opportunities through sport. And now, you know, I get to get to travel and meet amazing people and do follow a passion and as a career um and I have seen like how powerful sport is not just from a physical well-being but a mental well-being as well and I'm kind of passionate about saying like you, you don't need to be a world champion you don't need to be smashing miles and miles if it's literally like walking to the lamppost or walking around your block like just be up and active and the benefits are amazing but um the story around Challenged Athletes Foundation, when I moved to San Francisco as a new pro, there was a very strong CAF community based in San Francisco. So I became aware of the organization there. Um, and then I was heading to Ironman Australia in 2017. And um, it was about 10 days before the race. It was the first time I'd, I was racing sort of there, back there as a professional in the full distance Um, and I, yeah, about 10 days before the race, we heard that one of the, the female pros that was due to be starting the race had had a a girl called Lauren Parker. She was, um, a very much an up and coming professional. She'd turned, she'd won her, she'd podiumed in her age group and in Kona and had turned professional and sort of was very much on the rise. And yeah, 10 days before the race, she had a bike accident, uh, both wheels, burst and she got flung into a guardrail and basically ended up paralyzed and I mean I didn't I'd never met Lauren I didn't know her at the time but obviously I was very aware that she was due to start the race with me and it just kind of like I think well it shook the whole of the triathlon Australia world but but worldwide and um we went to the race and that was my first um Ironman win um I'd had loads of second places and then managed to to finally take take a win as a professional over the Ironman distance, which was just an incredible experience. But um, obviously there was just this kind of, and I, I think I said it in my winner's speech sort of thing that, you know, there's someone else who should be here with us today and, and Lauren Parker. And um, 
I just decided that I felt the need to go and see her and meet her. And um, which is really tricky when you've never met someone before and then you turn up at hospital sort of 10 days or 15 days after they've just had their life changed forever. And um, so I, on my way back after the race, I was driving back to Sydney where she was in hospital. And I had contacted her and I went to visit her and met her and um which was yeah I mean amazing situation um incredibly sad as well obviously but um you could just see her character even then she was obviously still was still pretty fresh everything that had happened but um I then reached out to Challenged Athletes Foundation and spoke to Bob Babbitt and said hey I don't know if you've heard there's this athlete in Australia um she was an age grouper turned pro and this is what's happened I don't know if she wants to get into sport I don't know where she's at it's obviously the accident is so is so new but just didn't know if CAF work globally or if you're more US based and Bob of course as he is is brilliant and pretty much sort of jumped on the phone to Lauren straight away and and reached out and um yeah got her pretty much through back into sport back into triathlon um she then she we he he invited her over to uh so the accident was in April May and then in October Challenged Athletes Foundation have a huge triathlon event in San Diego and Bob sort of invited Lauren over and and we went and she actually she, this is, this shows how determined and stubborn she is she actually checked herself out of hospital she had to um leave hospital to go to the event and they they wouldn't let her back in once she'd sort of released herself from hospital so she was sort of out in the world on her own after that um and and yeah we've just kind of I guess been friends ever since and gone to the event and I mean Lauren's gone on to be Commonwealth champion she oh gut-wrenchingly was second at the Paralympics in Tokyo um oh that was her in the sprint oh my goodness I didn't recognize (laughs) oh what a tie-in oh okay you know and that that had that had kept her going for for years and years and years after the accident of getting that that gold medal in in Tokyo so to lose to come second by the thinnest of margins in the last dying seconds of the race um was gut-wrenching for everyone I think you could see it you could see it on her her face but you know she's she's such a resilient athlete and she's got further aspirations for for Paris and she wants to go to Kona and and race as a, a wheelchair athlete in in Kona that's where her like her love is um so yeah and I've just yeah so I've always then been involved with with challenged athletes from there what a story <laughs> Yeah. I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, uh, souls for souls. Tell us about that. Yeah. So that, I mean, this, you know, I'm really, it was when I was in New Zealand and I'm, I'm really grateful for the partnerships I have with as a professional now um, in supporting me. Um, but often we get a lot of kit and trainers which is all really valuable and useful but because I was traveling around so much I'm kind of known as a nomadic triathlete and I didn't really have a base I'd find that I couldn't always take everything with me um and then you'd you'd wear it a bit and then new you know new products would get sent which was again amazing and very grateful but I was kind of like there's got to be something better that I can do with this with these shoes and and kit like I don't I don't just want to take it to the local local charity shop 
but very valid if people want to do that. So I'm not dismissing that. But I kind of felt there should be, there must be like a better, a more, what was I going to say, just a, a, an organization where I can see the impact that the shoes are having. And so I came across, yeah, Souls for Souls, who are based out of the US. And I contacted them and started talking with them. And we tried to sort of set up various uh, distrib- uh, collection points in New Zealand and things like that. And it didn't, it didn't really get off the ground. And, but it was then when I sort of started being a little bit more based in Europe that um, I was at a, a challenge family race directors meeting and they were talking about their sort of plans for sustainability and the next five years. And I just had this sort of penny drop moment. I was and thinking, Oh, I wonder if, I could part, we could connect some dots and partner souls for souls with challenge so that as athletes go to races, they can drop off any shoes and kit that they don't need anymore. And then that can go back to souls for souls. And, um, and yeah, it was really cool. Challenge came on board with that. And then I, so that was kind of predominantly, I guess, European based, although I would say clash Daytona and, and clash Miami have been amazing supporters as well. And then, yeah, got in contact. And just, and just at the very basic level, they, they distribute shoes to people in need. Yeah, so yeah, sorry, I should go back. So they're an amazing, yeah, a great organization. There's a few things that I really love about what they do. So they take they take new shoes from like your big brands if they are, um, you know, end of line, end of stock or, or singles and stuff like that. But they also obviously collect, they call it, you know, gently used shoes from from people and any types of shoes and they either send them to sort of yeah disaster relief areas or you know there's a big campaign in the US to make sure that every child in the in the US has a pair of shoes and so so you know low social economic areas but the other the other area the things they do is that they send the shoes over to I guess sort of the third world countries or countries like Honduras Haiti and they help women set up their own businesses selling shoes and which is the thing I love so one it it helps the women have financial independence learn how to run a business the women can support their own families their own communities you know and then it goes on to it keeps the shoes out of landfill um you know and it helps fight that poverty so that's that's an area I really I really love from the women's perspective um and yeah, and we've now got a partnership in the UK. So there's a UK collection point, which has gone really well, that Souls to Souls are now thinking to make that a little bit more formal and coming over over to the UK. And it's cool with the UK one, we also try and work with, um, and I have to say a lot of this work's been done by Sarah from from New Fred, who is sort of the, the, H, the HQ for collecting the shoes. Um, but we're trying to work with like local schools, local organizations in the uk so that the shoes can sort of have a good impact locally um so yeah that's kind of yeah and that's hopefully just grow it a little bit as well yeah that's awesome and uh the the last one i wanted to ask you about is sit squad <laughs> yeah that came about like, again something i've wanted to do for quite a while in terms of whether it was setting up a team but just kind of support provide more back to to athletes and and particularly female athletes um but I never I didn't really know how to set it up I didn't know how to approach sponsors brands or what it would look like and then the the wheel company I, I work with parkour and and dove who who runs that last I think what was it last year said oh 
as part of the 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 partnership this year i'm going to give you a spare set of wheels and you can give them away however however you want you can do a competition or whatever it was and it was just at that right moment that gave me sort of that kick kick in the right direction to say actually i could do this as a as a a mentoring or a partnership and so contacted then my other the other brands i work with who were all amazing and they most of them came on board in offering kit or equipment to some level and so we launched the uh, Sid Squad, which decided was has, had to be UK based to start with, just with all where the sponsors were and for for shipping and stuff. But I mean, ultimately, I'd like it to be to be global. And I had quite a few people reach out from overseas saying, "Oh, is there anything like this in our country? Like, we'd we'd love to be involved." And and I, I mean, I was blown away. I had like over fifty applicants, um, fourteen between fourteen and twenty four years old, female triathletes I'd put no no prerequisite so I just said triathlete you know I didn't say how you know how good how how new how many years in the sport left it pretty vague um and had incredible applicants and it was so so hard to make a decision um and but ultimately I, I had to pick one athlete I picked a picked a girl called Letitia um, who just I, I made everyone do videos so it was kind of good to kind of try and get a bit more of a an idea of their personality and character and um so yeah so Letitia came on board as kind of that main athlete and um to offer mentoring I, I coach her as well but then to have that support from brands and just but the, the thing that because I was so blown away by all the applicants what we then did is create a community um, with everybody where they've got a access to ask questions or things like that and I'm trying to I, I just it's an I, I haven't be got as far as I would like with developing that just because it's me trying to do it and with everything else going on I'd, I'd like to be a bit more proactive in building that and then building it into something bigger um, but yeah it's still yeah just something again passionate about and I think seeing the applications come in showed me that there, there was a need a need for it, the need to do it. There's just not enough Laura to go around, clearly. <laughs> well, I'm glad that there was enough to go around just to get onto this podcast because we've encapsulated quite a bit into uh, uh, just a little over half an hour. Laura Siddle, thank you so much for sharing uh, all of that in uh, a short time. Uh, for those of you who are Patreon subscribers, you would have heard uh, Laura's uh, segment that she did with me uh, a few weeks before this was uh, published. But for those of you who are not, this is an opportunity to think about becoming a Patreon subscriber so that you can hear that bonus content. Uh, Laura Siddall, thank you again for joining me on the Tridog Podcast today. This was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. Absolute pleasure. I loved it as well. Thanks, Jeff. And that's it for another episode. The Tridog Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesch. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridogpodcast.com. If you have questions or comments about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or if you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode, I hope that you'll send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridogcoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the coaching services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, 
Coaching on Instagram and the Coaching YouTube channel. In addition, I've started a private group on Facebook for the TriDoc Podcast where listeners can discuss upcoming episodes, topics that they have in mind for me to discuss on the medical segments, and much more. I hope you'll ask to join, and I will gladly admit you. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you will consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.